Hi, welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly podcast about food, fashion, and making a difference in the world. Uh, we've had many guests who were qualified to talk on these three issues, but probably none as qualified as chef and restaurateur Alice Waters. Alice, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. You know, Shower Strength has raised and spent over $1 billion to bring childhood hunger in the United States to its lowest level in history. And that all started 37 years ago when a woman 3,000 miles away who never met us sent $500 and a note saying, let me know what else I can do. That woman, of course, was a chef and restaurateur named Alice Waters and her restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, then 13 years old, but already iconic, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It's not only an important milestone for culinary innovations that Alice introduced, but it's also a cultural milestone for the notion of chef as activist. Between that anniversary and a new book that Alice Waters has just published, We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto, there's been a lot of media interest in Alice Waters and her views, and that includes this podcast, Add Passion and Stir, and we're delighted, Alice, to have you on. Much like Add Passion and Stir itself, your book has been said to detail many of the most urgent problems that we face in today's world, such as economic disparity, environmental degradation, illness, and social unrest and to make the point that they're all connected in some way to food. Thanks so much for being with us. I don't know, Alice, if you can remember as far back as we could. In your case, it was probably one of many acts of generosity and activism. In our case, it was absolutely fundamental to the future of Share Our Strength that you responded in 1984 with a donation and a note saying, let me know what else I can do. Uh, and uh, it's, it's now a billion dollars and 35 years later, and we're both still doing what we do. Alice, um, not only did you um, make a contribution, but you did something, I, I hope you remember this, you did something even more important than that because you sent a contribution, but then you sent an appeal. Well, in your note, it said, you know, what else can I do? So I wrote you right back and said, you know, you can ask your, you can ask your chef friends to do exactly what you did. And you <laughs> reached out to Jeremiah Tower and Mark Miller and Bradley Ogden and Joyce Goldstein with the same appeal. And it's amazing that I remember this. I remember this so well. That, and we got back notes and money from all of them. But Bradley Ogden's note said, he sent a check. And then he said, when Alice Waters talks, I listen. He might have said, we listen, you know, and it was just like this wonderful um, moment of understanding. Not only are you so generous and to respond to people you didn't know, but how influential you are and how that taught us kind of that, you know, influencing circle of, of how powerful that was. So you started something really big with us a long time ago. And and as Billy said, you're, you're such the perfect guest because we describe this show as a conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. I mean, there's no one better to have on this show, um, number one, to bring us full circle, but also um, everything you've done to show everybody how food is connected to all these issues that we care about. And Alice, although I introduced the uh, perfect guest, I didn't introduce the perfect co-host. Thank you. My sister, Debbie Shore. Thrilled that you're with us, Deb. Uh, it's been a while, but I, I didn't want to miss this one. Thank you. So good to be back with Alice, especially. Well, Alice, <laughs> ca catch us up. and How should we begin? <laughs> yeah, how should we begin? Let's talk about how, how you decide 
what to get involved in. I know from your writing the importance of of the kind of the slow food uh, movement and uh, the importance of agriculture as a kind of a political act. But back in 1984, uh, these were early notions, and yet you were involved in so many charitable activities then. I know Debbie and I are going to want to ask you about uh, Edible Schoolyard. Uh, just in terms of your own philosophy, how have you decided uh, how to literally share your strengths uh, and make a difference in the world? I think I really want to know that it's a good idea, that it has a great potential of making a difference. It's very hard for me to give to an organization that could work out to be an effective uh, way of dealing with these massive issues of, of hunger and ecology. But to have one that is really focused on children and food and the idea that people who are in the food world could contribute and that we could do this thing together. I just loved it. I love the title, Share Our Strength, <laughs> because it, 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 it made me feel like, even though that contribution seemed big to you at the time, it wasn't huge, but I felt like it was important. And you have to know about the people who are running an organization. For sure. You have to know that they are committed and their values are the same. And then you feel that confidence. Um, one organization that I give to all the time is a homeless organization down in Santa Cruz. They made a garden, a homeless garden. And I think it's like 30 years old now. But it was only something like five acres, and now it's 25 acres. And every person who works there ends up leaving and finding a great job or is still there working and helping them expand. And it's right next to the University of California at Santa Cruz. So students volunteer their help in the garden. And what a great idea that is. But those are the ideas we really need to get out in the world. And that's, I guess that's why I'm so focused on public education, <laughs> because it's a universal idea. Every child goes to school for sure. And we have an opportunity to not only feed them at school for free, which is floating around, but we have an opportunity to feed them regenerative organic food and address climate at the same time. What, what, what does that mean, Alice, regenerative food? Can you explain that? Regenerative, I, I mean, you know what organic means, no herbicides, no pesticides, taking care of the land. But regenerative has become the really important word to include with organic because regenerative means that you're allowing the soil to be all that it can be. You're taking the compost and putting it on the ground. You're really nourishing the soil. And that is what 
pulls the carbon out of the air and puts it down in the ground where it belongs. So we're talking about cover crops. We're talking about, I'm talking about taking all the scraps from the schools back to the local farms, creating a network like we have done at Chez for almost 50 years, where we are giving them the money directly, the farmers and the ranchers and fishers, all of those people who are taking care of the environment, we're paying them the real cost. So that's why they all wanted to sell to us at the beginning of how the network developed is that they didn't have to sell wholesale to Whole Foods. They didn't have to go to the farmer's market every week and hope that they were going to sell their food. They just sold everything to Japanese. And that's how we got Bob Kennard, who happened at the very beginning, almost 40 years ago, to be a regenerative farmer. He was farming that way. And we thought he was a little crazy when he said, our carrots are 10 times more nutritious than anybody else's. Well, guess what? Not 10, 25%. (laughs) Alice, is it true? Did I read, I think I read, and Billy, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in there. You said so many things that I just want to hear more about, but um, is it true that you, you buy from 80 farmers? Well, there are in our network um, probably that many, but some people just have peaches at one little moment in time, period. That's all they have. Just we buy all the peaches we can get or kishu mandarins or cherries. I mean, just um, thinking about fruit, uh, particularly at this moment in time, looking forward to those peaches. But it's... Um, it's sounds like it's complicated to do this with schools. It sounds that way. And fast food uh, culture would like you to believe that it's complicated, but it isn't. It's so rewarding. Even at the Edible Schoolyard Project here in Berkeley, um, we are connected with farmers who bring the food and want to bring it right to the school and want to connect with the students. And so that is how the values came into Chez Panisse. They came right through the kitchen door. And Bob Kennard would say to us, why didn't you use the stems of the chart? (laughs) And we'd say, oh no, I guess we have to do that. And we started cutting those rainbow chart stems and putting it in with the wilted chart. But that's just, That was one little tiny thing, he said. But he always wanted all of our food um, scraps. He wanted the shells of um, of the oysters because he ground those up and they were part of his, his whole nourishment program. And he's been teaching a lot of this way of growing food. And so he's very good at explaining this very uncomplicated technique, really. It's a, uh, there were a lot of people influenced by that farmer, Fukuoka, Japanese guy, 
but who just said, do nothing, <laughs> do nothing farming. Uh, where you just don't plow, you don't do, you just let it all grow together. <laughs> and that is so beautiful to contemplate the way that nature knows how to nourish itself and how to give that to us. And that is such a, a beautiful gift of taste because when you buy directly from the farmer, he's picking it or she's picking it right at that moment of ripeness. So we at Chevenise get to serve food that has aliveness and a taste that you could never, ever have if you didn't buy food seasonally. But but it but but is this kind of purchasing directly from the farmer? It's is it avail it is not available to every restaurant in the country, or or is it no matter where you live? And how do you you know the difference between living in California and living in Indiana? How do you think about that? Well, I grew up in New Jersey. It was very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. And my parents had a victory garden during the war. So they had a big one because they had a lot of kids to feed. There were four of us. And my mother wasn't a good cook, but she learned how to can things for the winter. Applesauce, rhubarb, all of the things from the garden. And that allowed us to eat, you know, corn, tomatoes that were the best of my whole life, really, to remember those, those experiences of picking the corn right out of the garden and putting it in the boiling pot of water and eating it <laughs> with a little butter on it. <laughs> I think about New Jersey tomatoes with that same kind of love. The humidity of the East Coast helps, but I don't think we have ever understood what it means to cook like this. I mean, the generation that is beyond 1950, 1945, let's say. Because it, I mean, this is the amazing thing, is we fed ourselves seasonally, locally, without pesticides and herbicides before 1945. So we're not talking about a long period of time. We're talking about a gigantic corporate monopoly of industrial food people who cared about making money more than anything else and still do. And were willing to tell us lies. They were willing to indoctrinate our children with ads on TV and everything else. But just think, it's only been that long. And we all have, I do believe, deep genes for eating food that is nourishing and eating seasonally because it changes you to eat that way. And people like Elliot Coleman up there in Maine, he's got a greenhouse. And he grows lettuces and herbs and things in it for the wintertime and even supplies schools with carrots and all kinds of things. But in the summer, he closes because in the summer in Maine, 
he can get everything. And I know that there are beans of every color, shape, and size that I've never even heard of that are dried and are used in, in Tennessee, where I cooked for Al Gore's Climate Summit last year, or the year before last. And I, I couldn't believe that I didn't, I thought I knew all the dried beans in California. And I know 15, but they had another five that I never seen colors and shapes and oh what the beauty of the winter is to have dried fruits and nuts and and to think about the grains that are available to us now around the world up things like farro and and uh, oh, we get the best brown rice and we just things like chickpeas who knew that children liked hummus? <laughs> Who knew that they liked kale with garlic? <laughs> but they do. And these are, again, the, I, I have to say that I never became an activist because I, I really felt like I had to do something. I mean, maybe I did in Berkeley during the 60s. But I've always wanted it to be something that gave me huge pleasure. And thinking about food and touching and smelling and tasting it, the beauty of it is why I've wanted to run the restaurant, why I've wanted to communicate what I felt in France to everybody who came in the door. No, well, I was, uh, Alice, I, I love to just hear the reverence with which you speak of food. And I feel like it has the impact of making all of us uh, rethink the way we think of food and the, you know, almost sacred qualities of it. Um, and, and as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of the 50th anniversary of Chez Panisse, which is so remarkable. And um, you and I could probably count on just a, a few hands, the number of restaurants that are 50 years old and still stronger, stronger than the day they, they started. But I'm really kind of fascinated by your own education and, uh, you know, how, how much of this uh, you knew the seed of all this, so to speak, must have been in you from the beginning. But, uh, you know, how much of this did you start with 50 years ago? versus what were the different light bulbs that went off for you where you started to think about uh, the importance of sustainability, of, of regenerative food, of the, the impact of the corporate sector? But I'm just curious, what were some of the milestones for you where you know your, your education just blossomed that way? I can't help but think that a year I spent in London taking a Montessori education training was critical to all of my thinking and it is so relevant now because she wanted to teach children who were sensorily deprived in the slums of Naples and in India because of poverty and hunger 
She wanted to know how to reach them. And so she developed this idea of education of the senses. So I learned that way. They taught me in this educational <laughs> circumstance in London how they would teach a child. So we had to go out into Hampstead Heath and collect leaves. And then we had to trace the leaves on a piece of paper. We had to see the shapes. We had to calligraph, learn how to write the description of the tree. And I know all of those trees in Hampstead Heath. <laughs> I can remember them because of that tactile experience. And food is a way to touch all of the senses. You're touching, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're almost listening to it when it's cooking. You're seeing the beauty of the food when it's just picked and sold in a farmer's market, when it's brought to the table, it's displayed in the restaurant. And so I used Montessori's ideas for getting people to come to ship and eat. I wanted it to smell good. So we had a fireplace and we had a wood oven and we baked bread. And we cooked things that reached people in subliminal ways. I wanted it to be beautiful and of the moment, of the season. So I put big displays of fall leaves at that time of year and wanted it to reach people uh, who came right in the door and just felt the, the light coming in the front of the restaurant at that time of day and that time of year. So these ideas were all embedded in the Edible Schoolyard Project because I put together uh, Montessori with food and gardening. So we set up a garden and a kitchen classroom, not to teach gardening or cooking per se, but to teach math and science and art outside, even music. And then the kitchen classroom became a place to teach history, world history. We'd be cooking the food of the country we were studying. Or maybe it's a language class. What better way than to learn a language while you're you're pounding the garlic? You know, what's that word in Spanish? <laughs> and you're making tortilla soup. I mean, it's a way to reach a person through all their senses. And those are our pathways into our minds. And that's the problem that we have today in the world, that we're imprisoned by a fast food culture. We're on our screens all the time. We're not in a sensory world. We buy food to go, we eat it. It's fast, cheap, and easy. We're not, we're not sitting down together and experiencing that that uh, ritual, I'd like to say, 
that has been with us since the beginning of civilization, eating together. We don't do that anymore, <laughs> not just because of the pandemic, but because it's too time consuming and we are too busy with much more important things. In your book, you have a chapter on, on convenience. And uh, I think most of us think of convenience as a, uh, as a positive, but you are kind of describing the other side of convenience and what we lose as a result of it. That's true. I really think that way. I, a great example is when you look on Google Maps and you see uh, where how to go to San Francisco, you see the fastest route. And that means you race down to the freeway, get onto the freeway, go to the city. I never go that way. I want to go down the back streets in Berkeley. I want to go down Sacramento. I want to go down that tree-lined street. I want to see what people's houses are like. I want to, I want to experience Berkeley. And it may take 10 minutes longer. But I, I thought, well, maybe I should come up with a scenic route app where you go the longest way. <laughs> and I mean, because that is about my everyday life. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste it doing something that I don't like. And that has to do with driving. I mean, Walking even during this pandemic has been fantastic. I mean, I learned to walk every day, first thing when I got up in the morning. And at first it was only 20 minutes and now it's 45 to an hour because I love to go the same route and see how things change, how the big leaves are coming along and when I can steal a fig or two from the neighbor. But it's that that wakes me up in the morning. I don't want to get on my exercise bike and watch the news. I don't want to do that. I want to take, be connected to nature. And she is a constant teacher. And right now, a kind of scary teacher with what's happening with fires in California. So that's why I'm completely focused on education. Alice, I wanted to go back to, if I could, to the edible schoolyard a little bit because we, we've talked about it, but um, I think it'd be helpful to describe all the different offers that it has. I, I know that there's a uh, kind of a central um, school, you know, edible schoolyard, but, but I also know that you, you're, you're doing both trainings in schools, but also bringing the program directly to schools. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the, kind of the structure and, and, and how it works and how many schools are involved? Well, at the beginning, I wanted proof of concept. So we tried to get one started in different places around the country. So I called my friend Suzanne going down in LA and she said, oh, I'd love to help you get that going. We'll start one at the Larchmont School where my kids are. And we began there. And then my friend Randy Fertel said, I live in New Orleans and we'd love to have a, one in New Orleans. And I thought, how great. It's hot, it's a different city. And then somebody called from North Carolina 
and they said, we have a Montessori kind of museum here and we'd like to have some edible education. And then my friend, John Lyons, who's a film producer, said he was a principal for the day for at a school in Brooklyn. He said, do you want us, we want to do this in Brooklyn. And I said, well, that would be great to do that there. And then somebody asked in upstate New York and I said, we need a cold place. And we had all of these schools that we tried to give them, you know, our ideas of learning by doing, by, you know, sensory experiences, all of the, the ideas that really worked in Berkeley. We did that. But we realized it was way too much for us to undertake since we were financing the Edible Schoolyard Project at Berkeley, supporting all the teachers, a thousand kids there that speak 22 different languages, and we couldn't do it all. And so we just said, we'll cheerlead for your project, but we can't be there. We can't give money for that. And that led them to be independent. And we decided to try to build a network, uh, an internet network, um, putting all of their projects out in the world. And then that just exploded on its own. And there are over 6,500 projects from around the world in every state of the United States. And every one is different. And of course, I'm so non-tech that I can't even give you the internet number, but if you just say it, what school you you get there. But what I realized, and we do have um, academies, we've had them every year in the summer, where people can come and get on the ground experience. We built a cafeteria, King, that I helped design that was going to feed all of the kids, and it's beautiful, and it had a lot of these ideas in it but it was taken over by the school district for all the food and I was made me very sad. We haven't used it the way it was intended, but it's beautiful and for people to see that, of what we can do, how we can see kids, how we can make placemats that are informational for when the kids are eating the food, how school lunch could be an academic subject. And I always say people, kids could get credit for eating it. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But this idea has been, been very, very important because we all share the same values. Learning by doing, nourishment, stewardship, equity, building community are deeply embedded in this whole network. But because K through 12 is so underfunded in this country, we don't fund and respect teachers. They are the ones that feed us and we don't respect farmers. Again, because of this fast food culture and indoctrination. But we have to really take care of the people that feed us. And so that is what I'm hoping will happen at the birthday of the 50th. We're going to have an event at the University of California 
at the Campanile with the president of the University of California and all the people who are teachers and the governor of the state and all of the people that I know around the country who want to gather and really understand that procurement of food is a gigantic business. And if we decided to put our money behind our values, we could educate the next generation to change the world. And I so believe that education is the deep, deep place where we can make systemic change. We're putting band-aids on everything and your efforts to feed hungry children could be aided 100% by feeding children for free, nourishing, regenerative food at school. I mean, that's the place where they could learn how to cook for themselves affordable food. For their whole lives, they might learn how to make a garden. And as my good friend Ron Finley <laughs> says, the gorilla gardener from LA, he says, growing food is like printing your own money. And he started planting food in the, in the strip between the sidewalk and the street. And he got cited for doing that. And he won the case. <laughs> and so he's got a garden that just won't stop <laughs> in the parkway. But that's the kind of action that we have been so disempowered and we need to empower our kids. And that was Montessori's idea from the beginning, empower kids to choose what they love to do in their lives. And putting canned food on shelves in Amazon factories is not part of it. We need to know that we can live beautiful lives. Alice, I feel like your comments bring us up to your book. And I want to save a few minutes to talk about your new book, We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto. Um, I mentioned to you that I read it this weekend. I thought it was terrific and a very important book. And one of the things you say there, I think akin to what you said a moment ago, is that when you grow food, you naturally want to keep the soil healthy. Cooking is really a tiny piece of the big cycle of the big cycle of the life of a plant. And you have to choose the right seed, identify the right soil, take care of that seedling and that plant in just the right way and know when to pick the fruit or vegetable. When you connect to the origins of your ingredients, it helps you understand the entire cycle and how delicate it can be and how linked we are. And your book makes such a powerful case for understanding the interconnections between food and every other issue that we care about. And I'm as I listen to you, I'm wondering how do you strike the balance because this is an issue I feel like we face every day at Share Our Strength. Uh, I, I took away from your book some very personal things that uh, we can do as individuals to make this planet uh, a, a better, healthier place. There are also policies that we need to advocate for, uh, and I'm a, and I'm, I'm wrapping a lot into one question here, but I'm assuming because of what you wrote, uh, that even though we've been going in a, in, in a rough direction here, that you're an optimist, that we can both make the changes at the personal level and at the, at the policy level. Do we need to be thinking on, on both levels? Absolutely, we do. But I'm asking people to do something I think they will find very 
irresistible. That's that because nature has the, her way of connecting. And I think of, of my childhood. I was outside all of the time. And I'm sure that that helped me to know nature and appreciate it in a way, I mean, that it's essential to my life. And once you love nature, you can't make the wrong decision about anything. You don't want to drive your car all the time. You don't want to do things that are really destroying the planet. You want to take care of her. And until we feel that way, we will never be able to make the right decisions. But my realization came through food. And I, I, I wanted to eat like that. I wanted to shop like the French did. I wanted to light a candle at the table. I wanted to go into a bakery that was baking bread and I could smell it and I'd wait in line to get my baguette. <laughs> but that's what I do because we only have one life here. <laughs> I, can, I want it to be meaningful every day. And when I cook a little taco for myself in the morning, it takes me three minutes because on Sunday I made a pot of beans. And then I just put the tortilla on the fire, put the beans, maybe a little coriander from my garden, cilantro, and I eat breakfast in a minute. And I, I think there are lots of ways that we can make this change by, you know, eating with our friends, cooking together that way. I do that every Sunday to invite people over. We all decide, I went to the farmer's market, we decide what we want to cook, and we all cook together. And we all clean up the dishes together, sweep the floor, turn on a refill. But um, what is most important, and I, can, I cannot understate it, is to feed children organic real food at school. We must do this. It's an economic stimulus for local organic farmers, ranchers, fishermen. And it's a way to build community locally. And it's the way that we're going to be able to have a hopeful future. And if we don't do this now, when we have suffered the pandemic and understand what interconnectedness means. And if we don't do it with climate change upon us, I worry that we won't do it. And that's why I think we all have to gather and unite around it. There are so many organizations like your organization that could help make this happen in the schools, who could educate teachers the way they've been doing it, educating parents and young people. And 
there are so many organic state-run organizations. I went to Georgia, 600 farmers and <laughs> educators came. I was so excited. We served them at school lunch. They're ready to go. Do you feel like, um, you know, I listen to you talk about this and it's like, you know, how could anybody, What you know, what's the resistance? What's the, um, you know, kind of pushback? And so how, how do we, you know, how do we think about that? Um, what are the reasons why people aren't doing this more? Is it awareness? Is it money? Is it, like, what, is it politics? It's all of the above. We have been told by the fast food industry. It costs too much to have organic food. You can't do it in the public schools. There are too many kids to feed. Impossible, impossible. There aren't enough farmers. There aren't enough ranchers. Impossible, just impossible. And and nobody knows how to cook and the, the schools aren't set up for that. And it just goes on and on and on. So we have to show that it's not impossible. And that's why I'm focused on the University of California in the state uh, uh, where we have 10 campuses. They're all spaced around the country. We have the brilliance of the university to do this. And I think that that could be a really great resource in every state to take the state universities, to empower them to do this. I know in Iowa, there are a lot of people at the University of Iowa, and that in includes the past president, uh, Michael B. Drake, who is now the president of the University of California. And people like Janet Napolitano, who was the president of the UC system, she has a carbon neutrality initiative for 2025, and food could be part of that. It's amazing that we've also been so disempowered around collaboration. It's almost as if we don't believe it works, even though Jimmy Carter showed us with his Habitat for Humanity <laughs> that we can paint a whole school in one day and plant a garden, which I did one time, that we can do this. We need to gather our best people to demonstrate these ideas. We must feed our children votes with food and values that they cherish out their whole lives. And I want to collaborate with you because we need to do this together. And it is what is going to give our young people hope because they know what's going to happen. They see climate and they're frightened and they need help with a, an education project that is nourishing them, allowing them to see. That's what happened to me, Berkeley in the 60s. <laughs> we felt like we ended the war in Vietnam. We felt like we addressed, you know, civil rights. 
we even thought we had free speech under control. And I've never lost the hopefulness because of that time. And we need to help young people feel that again. And it's not a fight in the streets. It is at the University of California or Ohio State. It's really getting into the curriculum in a deep way. It's empowering students to live meaningful lives. One of the things uh, you, you said in your book when you were talking about Wendell Berry, uh, saying that eating is an agricultural act, was you were saying eating becomes a political act because every daily decision we make has consequences for the world at large, and every meal fundamentally connects us to life on the planet. Food connects us to the possibility and the power of nature, the awe-inspiring gift of it. This is a place where we can make radical change. Uh, you've been at the forefront of radical change, Alice, for for 50 years. I can't wait to see what the next 50 bring. Uh, I'm thrilled that you were part of uh, Share Our Strength's first 35 years. You did play a, a really seminal role in it, and we're really all inspired by your words. And I just want to encourage people to uh, go out and buy and read We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto. It's a very important book. Uh, it's a uh, I read it in a weekend, and uh, we'll probably end up reading it again, because if you want to understand the changes that you can make as an individual to really impact the planet. Uh, it's in Alice Waters' new book. So thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, and I just want to thank our entire team at Share Our Strength for making this podcast uh, possible. And our producer, uh, Paul Woodall at District Productive. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and find all of our previous episodes. It's going to be hard to find one as good as this one uh, with Alice Waters, but uh, there are previous episodes that are uh, worth listening to as well, and you can rate us and rank us and share with your friends. Uh, thanks so much for listening. On behalf of my sister, Debbie Shore, uh, myself, Billy Shore, uh, thanks for listening to Ad Passion and Stir.